So this evening, um, I'm going to reflect on the, uh, the, the Four Noble Truths. And uh, first of all, how many of you are, are new? new? New to the center here? Okay. Uh, new to practice? Not so many. Okay, great. How many folks have, uh, have not heard of the Four Noble Truths? Okay. So most people have. Good. So I'm going to reflect on, on this very core teaching of the Buddhas and hopefully uh, bring out some light. It's kind of like a, um, a kitchen sink talk, you know, like everything but the kitchen sink. Well, this includes the kitchen sink because you get like a real overview of the core teaching of the Buddha. So from an early sutta, so suttas are early, they're teachings from what the historical Buddha that were, that were um, written down some hundred years after his, his death. And from one sutta, it's called the Samsana Sutta, um, the, the Buddha was in the forest with uh, some of his disciples. And he picked up a handful of leaves, and he, he said to them, which is greater, the leaves in the forest or the leaves in my hand? And they responded, of course, the leaves in the forest. To which the Buddha said, what I understand, the amount of things I understand is like the leaves in the forest, but what I teach is like the leaves in my hand. And I asked him why. Because this is what you need to know to get free. And the leaves in his hand are the four noble truths. When Larry Rosenberg, who's the, the, you know, the founder of the center here, when he was going to start the center, he had a conversation with the, the Dalai Lama. And <clears throat> the Dalai Lama, and Larry had practiced in Zen and in, uh, Krishna, with Krishnamurti and done insight practice. And he asked the Dalai Lama, what, like, what do I need to emphasize? And the Dalai Lama said, you know, paraphrasing, of course, <laughs> uh, the Four Noble Truths. And actually, the, the Four Noble Truths are a little, there's something even simpler. It's said that the Buddha said that he taught one thing, suffering and, and the end of suffering. Okay. So what we'll be exploring tonight is looking at suffering. What are these four, these four truths or these four, we can call them working hypotheses or different ways of looking at what they are. So the first is suffering or unsatisfactoriness or dukkha. That's the Pali from the early Buddhist language. The second is the cause. So there's suffering and there's a cause, and it's, uh, the word is tanha. And it means craving or reactivity or different, different English words to get the meaning of uh, a kind of unwise clinging and craving. And the third is that there's freedom. It's called Nibbana. It's something that is outside of this. And the fourth is that there's a path, and that's the Eightfold Path. So I like to think of these four, what are called for these four truths, or these four statements, 
um, as ennobling. You think, what's ennobling about suffering? They're ennobling, uh, and this is for meditators, okay? This is for us concerned with the inner life of meditation, not just the theoretical life of, like, say, Buddhist theory, is they're ennobling because if we look at them, we study them and work with them, then they can lead to a real shift in the quality of our life and how we relate inwardly to ourselves and the quality of the lives of all the beings that we encounter. So that's why it's ennobling. It ennobles the quality of our life. So there are these four things, and they also, there's kind of a pair. You know, there's always listen in the Buddha, if you've been around a while. So there's not just suffering, cause, end, and path, but there's a way to work with each one. And so dukkha is to be understood. Tanha is to be let go of or relinquished. Nibbana is to be realized, right? And the Eightfold Path is to be practiced, developed. And in the Kalama Sutta, it's a kind of a dec- early declaration that the Buddha said that any teaching you receive, you should test it in the fire of your life and see if it's worthy, see if it helps you to live. You shouldn't go by authority. You shouldn't go by someone's reputation, what a friend tells you. But you really need to test in the fire of your life any teaching. And if it helps you, then treat it like gold. And if it doesn't, move on. Keep searching. So please hold this inquiry um, with that spirit. So I'm going to start with a basic assumption. Is, and this is a, <coughs> from the Buddha. It's about causal dependency. It's kind of actually very scientific in a way. When there is this, that is. When this arises, with the arising of this, that arises. When there is not this, neither is that. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So everything is dependent on something else. Okay? So if we work with the cause and conditions... A result will naturally follow, both in the positive and in the uprooting or the negative. Okay? Everyone agree with that? If you can, you can stay. If you don't, if you have some different logic, then okay. Um, so let's look at these terms more clearly now. The con- conception of dukkha. On one level, there's <clears throat> the, just the sense, and again, this is kind of a classic teaching, um, that it, there's just normal human suffering that we all go through. Uh, we get old, we get sick, we die, um, we get stuck with things we don't like, we don't get things that we want, right? We get separate from things we want. Uh, we have sorrow, we've talked about this, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Nice long <laughs> list. <laughs> So we have emotional suffering at a lot of levels, right? Go quite deep. So this is all part of normal human suffering. There are certain kind of suffering that is said are unavoidable as a human. And that is, if you have a body, you will suffer. Have you noticed? No, no, no amount of 
organic food from Whole Foods or <laughs> yoga or whatever it might be changes that. Now, we can work with it skillfully, but it's a fact. It's unavoidable. Okay? And it's even said that the Buddha, when he, when he died, he ate some bad meat because uh, he ate what people gave him. Right? He lived on the generosity of others. Um, and he, that he had racking pain in his body. So even the Buddha... So I'm trying to, trying to debunk, debunk the, the myth that if you are awake, and that's what Buddha means, awake, right? It's a historical figure, but also an archetype, that you won't suffer. Well, in certain ways, you will. Okay? So then there's a level of what is often called uh, optional suffering. Okay? <laughs> And this is really what we're concerned with in this exploration. There's a wonderful teaching of what's the two arrows or the darts, which probably many of you have heard, but it's one where you can study for our whole lives. And it's a story of a man who was uh, shot by an arrow. And there are various variations of the story, but basically uh, he either had to try to pull the arrow out quickly himself if he could, or he had friends around if he couldn't pull it out, and he had to employ them to go get a doctor and to come back as soon as he can. But what did he do? What he did is he started to, he started to say, where did, this, where did this arrow come from? Who shot it? How dare they? Why would they do that? And he went on and on and asked these questions. How long? I guess he lost his mind a little bit. How long was the arrow shaft? What, were the, what kind of bird did the feathers come from? Meanwhile, what's happening? Is he getting any better? No. He simply needed to look at the injury and look directly at the pain, see how serious it was, and know what to do. What would be skillful action there, but he didn't. So he was practicing something that we're all quite familiar with when facing pain in one way or another. And I like to call it avoidance therapy. So rather than looking at what needs to be done with something where there's real suffering, we do everything else not to. Often it feels good to, to uh, blame others, right, like he did, or get lost in speculation. It makes us feel good at a certain level, but is it wise? So there's a story of Ajahn Sumedho. He gives talks here sometimes. He's a, a Western monk, a disciple of Ajahn Chah, a great force master, I'll be quoting later. And he was at a, the story goes, he was at a Buddhist conference once, and he was in a plenary session or something, and people were sharing their views on sophisticated elements of Dharma, these authorities. And, uh, and they started getting in a kind of heated debate. One opinion after the other. One's getting a little riled up here. And it came to him, and I guess what he just looked around the room, looked at everyone, and he said, are you suffering? So you can imagine all these esteemed folks um, with all kinds of views and opinions falling back on rationalizations and justifications when you when ask that question. And I don't know what happened, but I do know what happens um, in our lives. At least I can speak for my own life. Often when I'm suffering, I'll go into all these different modes. So there's a great word called papancha which means mental proliferation. And it's often what we do. 
in relationship to suffering. One question that we can ask ourselves, which uh, the man did not ask himself when he was shot, shooting himself with the second arrow, right? That's what the analogy is, shooting himself. Is that, am I making extra? Are we making extra out of a situation? And when we ask ourselves that and the answer is yes, then in our own way, we're shooting ourselves with the second arrow, Okay. It's a kind of uh, neurotic suffering. And it's what we do in relation to what life does to us. It would be nice if we could control everything, wouldn't it? We could go our own way, everything. (laughs) But we can't. And so we're in this constant negotiation. And often we have these undercurrents in relation to what what, what is happening to us that is a kind of neurotic suffering. And, well, we'll explore. Maybe it's optional, okay? Um, one way that's really powerful, powerful to look at this energy is that the kind of the gap between the way it should be in our minds and the way it is. <laughs> should be versus is. So we know, we know the way it should be and we expect it to be a certain way, don't we? A lot of the time. What happens when it's not that way? What happens? Okay, we get disappointed. We we have a lot of di- we have a lot of different reactions, and a lot of them uh, aren't that pleasant, right? So when I was growing up, my dad uh, it told me that the key to happiness is to have a low level of expectations. <laughs> and not just in terms of myself, but in terms of the world, right? Just have a low level. You'll be happier if you have a low level of expectations. Well, I think the, the, uh, the Buddha would kind of, um, kind of one-upped him and said that the key level to happiness is to have uh, no level of expectation. <laughs> In other words, expectation equals suffering. Okay? It's like a formula. <laughs> and our expectation isn't our preference, but it's our attachment. Right? And it's our imposing that it has to be this way. There's a, a, an ancient uh, Chinese Zen poem which says uh, the great way is not difficult for those. It can be interpreted two ways. For, not, for those who don't have any preferences. Right? Or, and this is a more modern one, which I think is more realistic, is not attached to their preferences. In other words, doesn't turn their preference into an expectation. So I want to uh, revisit dukkha with another, this term dukkha, another definition of it, which complements the one we just looked at, this unsatisfactoriness or suffering, is it's uh, likened to a wheel out of kilter. That's actually a literal translation. It's like a wheel that's trying to roll in our lives, on a cart, and it's out of kilter. So what does that make? Our ride is kind of bumpy, extra bumpy, especially if the terrain of life isn't very smooth. Shantideva, who was a great Indian master, lived many centuries ago, um, asked a question. He says, is it, so kind of what makes more sense? To try to cover the entire world with leather, right? Smooth it all out. Or 
put leather on the soles of our feet and walk around the planet the way it is. Well, what do you think? I go with the first. No, I think it'd be much nicer. So I could walk around barefoot and everything's all smooth everywhere, right? But what's more economical? Of course. <laughs> uh, what will be better use our resources better, right? How many resources do we spend trying to do the first? And what is more effective? And so freedom is in relation to our life. It's relational, and it's in our power to condition how we relate to the conditions of our life. We often don't actually believe this. We hear it, but we don't get it. So this teaching is trying to help us to get it. So what's the whole project of the Buddha, this notion of suffering and the end of suffering is that there's a, we're trying to make a radical, it's a subjective, it's for each one of us, okay? Subjective, psychological shift in relating to our life. And it's subjective. It's our own personal journey. It's our own personal relationship, okay? It's not abstract. In the absence of the second arrow, there is freedom in choice. And it may even save our life. Right? Like it might have saved that person's life if they just saw what needed to be done and did it without making extra. So what is the cause of this? sort of optional suffering, we might call it. So the, the, the second term is tanha, or craving. And craving is, it's sometimes it's translated, translated as desire, and it's not, it's not um, all desire. Because one of the teachers I had in Thailand, Mahaboa, um, he has a, a wonderful sort of teaching, and he teaches on the desire to end all desire. It takes energy, and I, I like to think of it and actually feel it, and I bet everyone in this room that has a s sustained practice can resonate with this. It's like a quiet inner passion for exploring our relationship to experience and cultivating a way of relating differently, finding resource, resources in our heart and our mind we didn't know we had. So it's a quiet inner passion. So this notion of that desire is sort of wrong or bad Let's, let's look more what this word tanha really, really means, okay? It's a little too simplistic. So what tanha is, is craving or clinging, craving for and clinging to sense pleasures. Again, these are classical. And something that's a little, little bit deep, and I'll just touch on it lightly, is it's, it's said that there's the craving for existence and for non-existence. And I actually think this is, it's actually very deep at an existential level because there's, like in part of our minds, we don't, we want to be forever. Like we can't, we, we can't kind of get our, grap, our, our grip in our, in our brains 
around the fact that we're not going to be here forever. There's part of it that you can't grok it. Right? So that whole, you know, to live forever and all, that's just an outer level. Which is that sense, that fear, that unknowing, that this is actually really deeply, we're not going to be here forever. So there's a craving for permanence. And there's also a craving, there can be just that, okay, <laughs> this is hard, <laughs> to have the certainty of not being. Right? And the fact is that our life is actually, in a way, in between. We have to live between these poles. Okay? And so there's a natural craving for these extremes, but we live in the middle. So another way of working at a more, you know, uh, kind of less, it's not less existential, but more practical in some ways, is just the craving or clinging for sense pleasures. Right? It's like in the wanting the next hit of something, a new experience could be sensual, food, sex, new car, house, vacation, intellectual, right? Craving for, the, for sense pleasure on different levels. And we're, we're kind of hardwired, aren't we, for that? Yeah? So it said that underlying all experience, this is like a, a, a way when we practice mindfulness to start to relate to experience in the moment. All, all experience has sort of one of three qualities happening all the time. One is pleasure. One is the opposite of pleasure, discomfort in some form, right? And one is kind of a neutrality. And it's like this underlying, underlying energies, and we are wired to move towards pleasure. Right? Pretty simple. There's actually nothing, in a certain way, these are just features of, that, go, that, that happen. But there are what are called toxins in the mind. There are qualities and energies that don't just see and have choice in relation to these basic experiences that are happening all the time. And this is what causes us to get into unwise reactive cycles, which is another way of translating, in a way, what tanha is. So these energies are wanting, right? Pretty hardwired in certain ways. Wanting, not wanting, or wanting to get rid of. We want pleasure. We want to get rid of things that are not pleasurable to us. And the third is not seeing clearly. We just don't get it. We don't see a situation clearly. And these create a reactive mind and heart. We're not conscious of these working, but they're working all the time. And it's, it can be like a, it's kind of like a, a cocktail, like a toxic cocktail of, of, of reactivity. <laughs> when these energies are functioning, pushing around, pushing us around constantly. And it becomes toxic when our thoughts, our emotions, and our identification and our minds get mixed up in these primal energies. Pleasure, discomfort, neutrality, and then the pushing and pulling that goes on. Okay? And ignorance in this, this cocktail, this reactive cocktail, ignorance is like the liquid and it. it holds everything. We're just not seeing clearly. We don't see cause and effect. We don't see the results of our actions. We don't. You don't see the nature of things. So this leads to unnecessary suffering. 
Tanha is, in practice, it is the energy of reactivity. So it doesn't just serve as the, as the energy of craving for, it's the movement to get rid of as well. Okay? And if we look at our lives, and many of us who have, who have a practice, one of the first things that happens, we start to see these energies functioning a little bit. And instead of just identifying with being right, <laughs> I'm justified in this, and just carrying along with the habitual unconscious nature of them, just that guess what? We start to see them a little bit. And is that good news? No. So self-knowledge in this way is bad news until it's not bad news. Okay? Right? But in one way, it's actually good news right from the start because if we look at the world, then we can start to see just on the outer display of reactivity. We can see that from conflicts in our families to our businesses, little things. We could, if we went around the room, we could all just go around and give two or three examples today in our own lives. I bet everyone could, unless you had a day of silence. And then you probably had plenty more dialogues than if it was real. <laughs> of how we were caught in reactivity. And how we created actions. So actions happen on three levels. They happen in, in the mind, right? Our thoughts, our, our underlying in- inclinations. They happen in, in words and they happen in deeds. And so if you look at a lot of the suffering that seems unnecessary in the world on many, many levels, where does it come from? It comes from the unconscious playing out of these again and again and again. Read a good novel. Look at the history of war, anything you want. Look at the situation right now, okay? So for our little part in it, it's kind of bad news to see that we're all, we all have these characteristics in our minds, but they're actually, when you, the bad news is the beginning of good news. And that's why this is, these are called four noble truths or ennobling truths. But you can't stop at the second one, or it's like you're up the creek without a paddle, Okay? So another analogy that's given um, for the four, these four noble truths is the analogy of a, um, of, of a doctor. Okay? And, and it's the, the first one. The doctor see a patient comes. That's us. We come to the doctor, and the doctor sees us and says, we say, oh, we're suffering. The doctor says, okay. And then he diagnoses the cause. So, right? It's, it's reactivity. It's tanha. It's unconscious energy is playing. And then the doctor says, if he looks, oh, you can get better. There's a possibility of coming out from underneath this. So that's the third. That's the third of, the, of these Four Noble Truths. The going out of the flame of reactivity is the actual translation of Nibbana. So it's the Ni is not, and Bana is the flame. So it's, the, it's, it's a going out of the flame of reactivity this craving energy. Now, you don't have to be a practitioner to taste this in certain ways. There are natural ways that we find a gap, that there are gaps in our psyches where we're just outside of it. We're outside of this pushing and pulling of experience, and we're renewed in a way that's fresh. We get out of the way. Sometimes in nature. Or the coffee, not just the caffeine, but really taking the sip of coffee. <laughs> and one of my teachers in Thailand, Buddha Dasi, said, if we didn't have these little natural moments, we'd really, we'd really go crazy. 
because we'd be so filled. We wouldn't, life couldn't break through. We couldn't be renewed. So this is a kind of a definition of sanity in a certain way, a certain level of intelligence and sanity, that it's the freedom from these energies. Right? So it happens in little ways, um, naturalness in nature. Um, there was a man named Paul Reps who went to Japan after the war and he wasn't allowed in. After World War II, he wasn't allowed in because they weren't allowing Americans in. And he, uh, so he was denied initially, but he wrote on a piece of paper something to the you know, person who's going to let him in and who, who wouldn't let him in. And he read it. Uh, he studied his Japanese. And, uh, and then he took his passport, stamped it, and let him in. And he went and studied Zen, became one of the first. He actually studied at a monastery where I uh, practiced for about six months in Kyoto. Um, he became one of the first people to bring Zen Buddhism back to America. And what he wrote on the paper was, sipping a cup of tea, I stopped the war. Right? So in a way, these energies are they're oppositional. So sipping a cup of tea, just being present, stopped the war. So these are little moments of freedom. And at a deeper level, there can be kind of an uprooting of these tendencies. And that's what we normal think of, normally think of as, as, as awakening. It's like we under our default mode is not reactive, but something different. Okay. And what is that something different? This is from the, uh, the Buddha's shorter discourse on emptiness. Satyadana. And there's an analogy I'm going to play out here. And the, the Buddha describes to Ananda, his chief attendant, dwelling in the forest, when he's dwelling in the forest, there are no people, no houses, no money, no mischief. No, he didn't say that. No society. And he said to Ananda that he abides in the emptiness of the village. When he's in the forest, there's just the village. He abides in the emptiness of what is not there. So this is a level, and we can relate to this, there's the absence of things. So he, the first analogy is giving an absence of outer stuff. Okay. But then he goes on, he describes a number of states of meditative states that he went through, refined states. And each one was empty of the one before it. Okay. But since they were all states, they all changed. They weren't permanent, they changed. And he saw this, and he found a state, or he... He, he, he saw this process, and then he said he came, there was a place where he realized a state that was free of these meditative states and free of toxins, free of greed, free of wanting, free of pushing, free of cloudy seeing. And so he was empty of all clinging, tanha, right? Pushing, pulling, oppositional energies. 
So I like this because freedom, in a way, is a lack of, it's an emptiness. It's an emptiness. It's the going out of something. And it said that this going out of something, this emptiness, is peace. So we can look at, like, peace is the absence of war. Right? It's a way, oh, it's a peaceful time. Well, you could say it was an absence of war, too. And the Buddha often spoke of negations in this way. But part of our, part of our practice is to learn to appreciate the emptiness, the pause, the space that can be inherent in the mind and the heart when it's not filled. So Thich Nhat Hanh, a wonderful Zen teacher, says you have to learn how to appreciate the non-toothache. Right? So that's an uprooting. When we start to do that, we start to uproot the habitual energy to dive back in to all these right, reactive energies. So the Buddha said in the sutta that he abided, he abided, is that a word? Abode? No, abided. He abides in emptiness. So that can be a place in practice, right? Where we see through and there's an abiding quality. So it's negative, but it actually isn't negative in the sense that we normally think of. In the absence, there's the possibility of a fullness. This great song Sanim, uh, one of actually Larry Rosenberg's first uh, teachers, Zen teacher, said he, he had this don't know mind, which is actually the absence of the absence of being filled <laughs> with all of our clinging to different views and opinions, etc. And he was doing an interview with a, ra- a radio interviewer, and at the end of the interview, the guy said, "Oh, it's great, song Sanim, that's wonderful, but I just don't understand this one thing you keep saying. What is this donut mind?" And he said, oh, very good. Empty in the middle. <laughs> Another uh, Zen, Zen master, uh, Suzuki, has the famous beginner's mind. He says that in the, the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And so, in a certain way, we're, we, we are experts in clinging and suffering and creating extra in relation to experience. Wouldn't you say so? In a certain way, we're actually far too intelligent. On a certain level, we are too intelligent for this practice. On a certain level. No, because our minds are not trained to let things be as they are. Right? And in certain ways, that serves us very well. But in other ways, on this level of possibility of freedom of the heart and the mind... Well, that's up for each of us to, to explore. So we become experts in suffering, but in the beginner's mind, so that's the empty mind, that's the open mind, that's the fresh mind, right? Not clogged, not clouded. There are many possibilities. And so in the emptiness, there's the possibility of new forms of life, of new forms of responding. So it's not, a, it's, it's not an emptiness that is dead by any means. And for those of us who practice and taste that and learn to abide, we know that, don't we? How many, raise your hands if you feel this is resonating with your actual experience. When you have, good. So there's aliveness in that. Great. Possibility. 
And that frees us to live our life. So in Zen, they say just, you know, chop wood and carry water. Well, for us, it's... Actually, I do have one, one friend that does chop wood. <laughs> Chops my wood, actually. <laughs> Cuts down trees. Uh, we have to do it in the complexities of our life. Our computers, our families, our cars, etc. But they're just our life. Whatever our life is, it is actually that way. And so this gives us the freedom to enter into it with that fresh perspective. The Bahya Sutta from the Buddha says, in the scene, there's just the scene. In the herd, just the, sur- just the herd. In the felt, just the felt. In all the senses, there's just what there is, including the arising of what arises in the mind and the heart. There's just that. In arising in the place of emptiness, being known, it can be just what it is. And he says this, to know this, to know exactly what's there. So in the Buddha's case, when he was empty, he's in the forest, just the forest. Empty of the village is just the force. Whatever is there. This is the end of suffering. To allow things to be in their own place. And think of what this would mean relationally. If we actually could just... And it's not the end of the game. We still respond. Wisdom can arise. We can know what skillful means is, what skillful action is. But if we could just let things be in their own place. So Longchenpa, this is a, a great Dzogchen from one of the later uh, Tibetan wisdom traditions, said, forms manifest sensory appearances are free in their own place. So this is this, these are statements of freedom. Sounds are audible. What is audible is free in its own place. Odors are sensed. Sensations are free in basic space, in emptiness. Flavors are tasted and tactile sensations are felt. They are free in the context of their own place. Consciousness and mental events are free without basic foundations or support. In other words, they arise. There's nothing extra. There's no extra clinging. So this is freedom. This is freedom. That's just the doorbell. Who is just going to answer it? (laughs) So this invites us, this possibility of freedom, for a radical shift in our relational qualities. Dogen Zenji, great founder of the Soto School in Zen, basically he says that awakening is intimacy. Like real intimacy. There's nothing in, there's no extra. There's just this. So there's real practical implications for the quality of our living when we can actually embrace this sense of opening to the going out of the flame of reactivity and letting our life be exactly as it is in the moment. Uh, a Tibetan, contemporary Tibetan teacher who died some years ago, Trungpa, said, awakening, which is what we're talking about here, is an accident. Sorry. But practice makes us accident prone, right? <laughs> <laughs> so 
So the fourth of these is the Eightfold Path. And that is the path of practice. The four, the four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path was the first sort of teaching that the Buddha gave after he was awakened. And the last thing that he said before he died to the people that were present was, uh, he used the term apamada, which means care or diligence. He said, work out your freedom right? with care and diligence. And so the Eightfold Noble Path, this is the qu- these are the qualities, this quality of apamada, care and diligence that runs throughout this structured approach to working with different levels of our experience to, to create the conditions, the cause and conditions where awakening can happen. And so in the analogy of the doctor, uh, when the doctor says, yes, you can get cured, here's the medicine you got to take it. You have to administer it. You have to do what the prescription is. That's hard, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah? Do it with care and diligence. So that's how we need to approach the path. And so the Eightfold Path is said it's, it's considered eight, uh, eight ways of working that are right or wise, right in the terms of moving towards freedom, letting go of reactivity, uh, more responsiveness, freedom, and they're broken down into three, three aspects. So uh, one is the aspect of ethics or just harmony in our outer relationships. Another level is the training of the mind and the heart through meditation. And the last is the level of, of wisdom. Okay? So it's, it's called sila, samadhi, and panya. And the way it's worked with is that actually the first part is the, is the wisdom aspect, but it's reflective. So in the training, you actually work with skillful thought in the beginning. So I'll, I'll describe the first two are the wisdom aspect, but the reflective to start. And then there's, the, then there's the ethical piece, the action piece, the meditative piece. And then you realize the wisdom piece, but from an experiential place. Okay? So the first is what is called wise view. And that's really looking, and we've already been working with that. It's seeing that the Four Noble Truths is possible in a way. And then it's, the Buddha said, if freedom were not possible, I wouldn't have taught it. So it's like, it is possible to wake up. <laughs> it is. Now it takes a little bit, kind of, sometimes it takes a little bit of faith, possibility to actually walk the path when we haven't experienced much. We've experienced some. Hopefully you can relate to some of the levels of freedom already. But what happens is that we, we have enough faith to get us, or we have enough energy to actually do the work, and then it becomes verified, it becomes our own, becomes transformative, okay? So part of the, the, the wise view is to put our confidence in the possibility of wakefulness. Traditionally, it's called the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, but it's the possibility of wakefulness. It's the teachings that help us, and it's the natural law of studying how things actually move and behave and how cause and effect actually works, okay? And it's also uh, taking, putting confidence in the, in the community and those that have gone beyond, gone before us, and also those that we practice with. So many of us, if you've ever done a retreat or something, sometimes it's hard and you wouldn't carry on if you didn't have others. 
So these are things, places where when we turn, we like to start to have a view that these are important. We place confidence in these, exploring these, putting energy in them. The second is thought. And this is how we can use our reflective minds. So one is looking at the fragility and the unpredictableness of life. So one of my colleagues up at the Insight Meditation Center of Newburyport, um, uh, I was talking with him yesterday, and he said, before I go and teach a class, I actually think to myself, this could be the last class I ever teach. And he's not a like moribund guy. He's not, he's, he's not like a negative guy, but it's a reflection. So in one of the schools in, in Tibetan Buddhism, at night it said they, they turn over their teacups because they don't know, and they love their tea. I guess so. <laughs> it's cold up there in the mountains, right? They either yak butter tea with milk and okay. It's actually not very good. <laughs> but they turn it over because they don't know. Or as Mary Al- like Mary Oliver says, how am I gonna spend this to paraphrase? How am I gonna spend spend this one wild and precious life? So there's a fragility in life, there's an unpredictableness. And so how are we actually gonna use our time? In a dialogue of the, the Buddha to his son, Raula, the Buddha, his son said, how do I know how to act, behave in the world? Another level of wise thought, which works with mindfulness, present moment awareness. He said, before you do something, see if it's, in best of your estimation, going to be beneficial to yourself and others, or yourself or the other person and not harmful for the other one, right? Or if it's going to be harmful, you just go through all the possibilities. Choose the best possibility, and then act, given all the information you have. Act. And while you're doing it, if you find out, ah, nope, ah, there's some variables here I didn't know about, it's not going so well, then be willing to change. Okay? But, and if it's, if it's going well, good. And at the end, after you've completed it, reflect again. And then just in your support those energies which actually are beneficial for ourselves and others. And what's kind of unique about how the Buddha said to work with thought is that when we make a mistake, when we do something that's not skillful, he said it's actually better to, to recognize it, to actually suffer, feel bad about it, not wallow in guilt. That's different. <laughs> okay? That's being experts in suffering, right? <laughs> but learn from it and then change. It's better to do that and try to change than it is to have done something that was harmful and not to know it. So ignorance is not bliss. <laughs> it's not wise. So that's skill. It's saying working skillfully with thoughts and having some humility, some humbleness in that. So it's this, this thought of inclining towards non-harming and wisdom. Okay. So that's thought. And then we move into speech, which... Uh, is there are what are called five precepts in traditional training, which we kind of take on not killing, not trying not to kill, lie, steal, have uh, sexually harmful behavior and speech that's, that's lying. Or And once I gave, was giving a talk on this at the Inside Meditation Society in Barrie, uh, just spontaneous, I mean, it was, it was a talk, but I forgot of these five, I forgot to talk about right speech. 
I just forgot. Like, they said, that was a really nice talk. I, I was teaching with Larry. He said, that was, real, that, that was good, but I think you left one out. <laughs> it's very easy to leave this one out. It is. Especially when we get so much juice out of gossiping and talking negatively. And this, so it's, it's hard to hold the principles of kindness in our thought into our speech. It's just, okay? But as we all know in our own ways, loose lips do sink ships. We do. In little ways, it happens all the time. Right? Okay, good. Um, the fourth is action, which is, again, it's, it's just actions as best we can that are grounded in a kind of harmony, a kind of non-harming energy. And um, in a certain way, it's very important for our inner journey just to respect this because when there's chaos, it's very hard to settle the mind and the heart outwardly, right? If we lived in a war zone now, would we be sitting here? We'd be worried about other things, wouldn't we? Even if, as you're paying attention to me, your own minds and hearts, you'd be paying attention to something else too. We wouldn't be able to settle as much. So harmony is very important in the fabric of actually being able to relax into experience enough to transform our relationship to experience. And that goes on all different levels. So holding kindness, harmony as a value in our actions is very important on all levels. And the, the last one is livelihood of this set. Um, and that it holds the same principle, but what I find very important with this is to have a kind of situational intelligence because we live in our lives and often there our work situations, et cetera, are mixed who does not have a mixed work situation on some level good everyone uh, okay maybe you don't okay good good you're pure okay he's a trust fund baby he's fine <laughs> no i'm just kidding we can, we can talk about it after but so it's so um the principles are the same ones of non-harming and sometimes you can do that purely and lively you can and if, if that's the situational ethic that's the best case scenario where you actually don't have to be compromised in any way. Um, but a couple of examples of, of how sometimes we do. One person I used to work with, one of his students was an executive with a company that's considered not a great company in terms of ethics for the environment. It was Monsanto, but I'm not going to, I don't really, I don't know. I don't know. I never worked there. I don't, I don't, I'm sure I benefit from some of their products. Okay. But anyways, he tried to change. He was very into mindfulness, and he tried to change the culture from the inside. So sometimes we can be in a situation that's not perfect, and we can bring our values and our skill in there, and we can affect some change from the inside. Okay. So it didn't work out, so he actually had to leave. He's an executive at a certain level. time. He left, and he actually started teaching mindfulness. He was very passionate about it. Another example comes from Ajahn Chah, the Thai teacher, who in Thailand, a, a villager came to him. He's a, he was a, a great master, and he was a fisherman. And he was really concerned. He said, I, I think I have to stop fishing. And then he had a dialogue with Ajahn Chah. And uh, he, didn't, he, didn't, he had a family. He had a wife. He had kids. And he had no other skills, I guess. And Ajahn Chah said, it's better if you don't, if you continue to be a fisherman. So that's interesting, isn't it? So that's a kind of situation, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it's, it's, putting, it's putting how we deal in situations, it's 
helping us, it's helping us to look in a way that's more holistic, that's more global, that's looking at all the different pieces that are involved. Okay? So these, this is meant to be something that actually works with the conditions of our lives. Now, I don't know what happened. Maybe he, you know, maybe when his kids got older, he became a monk. Then he could, then he doesn't kill, right? I, I don't know what happened in his situation. But I know the spirit of this, this is from uh, Robert Aiken Roshi, an American Zen teacher. And this is paraphrasing. Um, he says, these ethics are not commandments written in stone, but are inspirations. Inspirations. They're directing our minds and hearts. They're helping us. That are written something in, that are written in something more fluid than water. So that's in our life, okay? It's in the, in the, something more fluid than water. So they're not, they're not this, okay? Because that doesn't work. Have you noticed? Okay. So are we taking care? And are we practicing diligence? And are we willing and humble enough to learn when we go wrong? That's kind of a core energy underneath? Are we inclined in a certain direction and we, can we change? Can we really kind of have the energy of humility? It's like the, the, the word humus, which is like the stuff underneath the earth that stuff grows out of, right? And humble and human all have the same root. So like in the a classical Asian image is that the, the lotus grows out of the mud, so out of the conditions of our life, right, the actual conditions, something else can be born. That's what it's saying when we start to actually engage working with these qualities, with these all, these are just aspects of, of our mind. We create, we create karma, we create action on three levels, mental, speech, and body, right? Body, speech, and mind. And the mind leads them. So that's just, it's just covering this whole area. It's our whole life. And so as, when we work with this, then it creates the conditions and it also expresses the last of the, or the, the, the second, it's, it's the last in this eight set, which is the meditation aspect. And the first of these is effort. So it's effort, mindfulness, and, and this is kind of, like I said, this is kind of a kitchen sink talk. So like I'm going, is it okay to, to touch on this just a little bit lightly? I'm doing it enough, I'm trying to give enough substance, but it's, Stop me if it's confusing, okay? So there's, there's three qualities of effort that I want to bring out. And effort is just the energy we put into, okay? Both our practice with diligence and care on the outside, but also when we're working inwardly in meditation. And the first effort, and this relates a lot with wise thought, is the Buddha said one, in one sutta on this, that you should practice like your hair is on fire. Now for some of us, not a problem, but <laughs> uh, but that what that's saying is that our life we do not know, right? It's the wise thought we just do not know, and we're all here. But read the news; we're reading about others that are not, right? And we know, so we don't know. It's fragile. So he's saying, like, that's how important it is to wake up if you care about the quality of your life. So the second level of it, but that can cause tension, right? I got to wake up. It doesn't, it's not a quiet passion. It's like, oh, 
So then the second level of effort is, is tempers that in a way. And it's the dialogue that the Buddha had with one of his monks who was going to disrobe because he was so high strung and he couldn't get it. Had that feeling sometimes, you just got to get it and you can't. And he's actually going to leave. And he had made a huge commitment. And the Buddha asked him what he was before he was a monk and he said he was a, a lute player. Right? He said, if you played the strings of your lute too tight, how would it sound? He said, awful, and they might even snap. Too loose, twangy. So you have to find that, he said, you know, what, what makes the right, what makes beautiful music? The string that is neither too tight nor too loose. So the strings are our heart and our mind. It's how we work with the quality of attention in the moment. And we, in our practice, we kind of go like this. So it's that inclination that place is neither too tight nor too loose. Then a final piece on effort is um, that it's actually already here, what you need. Like how much effort does it take? And Utejaniya, the Burmese teacher, emphasized this a lot. Like just like touch two fingers together. Right now. Can you feel that? How much effort does it take to feel that? Does it take any effort? How much? Like it's just nothing, right? It's just poof. So at a certain level, awakening is natural. Okay? Awareness is natural. And then that's a very relaxed place of attention. So we work in this. So there's wise effort. There's wise concent- there's concentration. And that's, uh, excuse me, mindfulness is the next one. And mindfulness is both remembering. It's the remembrance of being on the path, of the values, of the direction we're going, of all these other qualities of being wise. And it's the remembrance of our meditation object for watching the breath or doing loving kindness or whatever it might be. It's to come back. And it's not, often mindfulness in, in sort of secular culture, it, it can just be ethically neutral. But mindfulness, it's called samasati, in this, in this work is actually inclined in a certain direction. It leads towards freedom, for, towards non-harming. Okay? Towards non-harming ourselves and others towards the uprooting of these reactive energies, not supporting them. And so that's that level of mindfulness. And then the, the experiential level is not remembrance, but it's just being with things. Like let's say we come back to the breath in a way that's non-judgmental, that just doesn't push and pull. It's just things just as they are. We're close to them. We just see them, but there's no judging going on. Okay? It's a judge-free zone, mindfulness. So once this matures, then the mind starts to settle and get concentrated. And that's the third of these, which is the mind that settles. And this can, ha- this can get quite, you can get quite absorbed where other things fade away. We know that naturally kind of in our work sometimes if we're really passionate about something, work or a hobby or something. We, sometimes we can't hear other things very clearly. Our partners or our wives or husbands, yeah, you didn't hear me. No, it's because I was so absorbed, right? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> but it's that quality of just really getting really focused. And there's a pleasure and a joy that comes in that. Okay? Skill, I was talking with my cousin at Thanksgiving, one of my cousins who's a, who's a ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And he had surgeries that are sometimes three to six hours. He was just had a long one. And I asked him about it. And while he's in it, he's really tired when it's over. While he's in it, he's just really in it he has to be, right? So that's why I couldn't do that. 
You wouldn't want me to do that. <laughs> I tried to cut someone's hair once. No, it didn't come out too well. That's, um, so there's that quality of absorption, which can be very pleasant and it can go very deep. And there's a lot written about it in terms of um, being absorbed. But there's also the quality, so that's good, but there's also the quality of concentration with just a steadiness of awareness. So we have enough awareness. And that's actually much more practical for people whose lives are busy. It's great when we can get focused. It's very renewing. But it said that we just need enough so that what? So that when these factors are balanced of effort, mindfulness, and concentration, that we actually can look into experience in a way where it transforms our relationship. And the wisdom piece, which was like view and thought, that becomes an experiential transformative piece. We see into experience in the moment in a way where we see things, we see change. We see non-clinging playing out. We see pleasure is just pleasure. Pain is just pain. We see the energies of wanting or not wanting is just what they are. And they're not bound up in this rigid kind of identification. Right? Reactivity. Things, we don't like solve, there's a, we don't solve things with insight. They kind of dissolve, they open. They empty themselves. When we look and we see. When the conditions are right. Right? When, Mindfulness, effort, and concentration are all there. When this is, that is. Okay? The clear seeing. Vipassana means special seeing. Seeing into. Into the nature of experience, we see change. We see the clinging nature of dukkha. And we, see, we start to see ourselves in the moment, not in a rigid, separate way, but as causing conditions. There's a much more open, interdependent, experiential. I was going to say experiential experience, but that doesn't work. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and we let go. We let go of clinging. We let go of reactivity. It just happens naturally. And when the reactivity is not, right, then clinging is not, then reactivity is not. The push-pull is not. And that's the emptiness. That's the openness. That's the freedom that arises naturally. So Ajahn Chah, this great Thai teacher, says, if you let go a little, and letting go is not pushing away. <laughs> it's when these cause and conditions are there and we see clearly, it naturally happens. Right? Accidents do happen that are good. If you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, there's complete peace. So it just depends on the strength of causes and conditions. And so the empty, spacious abiding that we let go of is full of possibility for wise response, not reactivity. And it said at the beginning of suffering, okay, the display of suffering, of, of the path and everything, it all plays out in the end, it all plays out, the Buddha said in this, I don't know why he called it fathom long. What's fathom? Well, that's the translation, but in this body. 
in these senses, in this mind and heart. It all plays out in here. It's not out there. It's in here. This is where it's all playing out. It's available right here and now, this transformation. There's a sutta which says, is visible here and now. It is timeless, inviting the truth. Come and see for yourself. Leading to freedom. To be seen individually by the wise. So we create the conditions where wisdom can arise. And it's not separate. It's not outside of the moment. Larry <coughs> Rosenberg has one poem. He said he told me he wrote one poem in his whole life. And it's this. You probably all know this one, right? If you, if you know Larry's teaching. He said, where is peace to be found? In the same place as sorrow. How convenient. Get it? <laughs> it's not outside of this moment and what's arising in this moment. The beginning, the middle, and the end of optional suffering <laughs> and the possibility for discovery and freedom. So in a way, this Eightfold Path is holistic, right? Because it covers our whole life and it's synergistic. It means that different aspects of the path, they support each other. It's not just linear. So I want to give you an example. So for some people, they come to meditation. They don't do it. They don't like work on all their ethics and then meditate. They meditate. Then they get sensitized, and then they start to be more harmonious in their life. They take more care. So they all work together, okay? And I want to just give a very simple example as we're... Oh, we're... You have to set our clocks back a half hour. Okay, is it okay if I... Well, I have no, you have no choice. You're a captive audience. <laughs> I'm almost done. <laughs> this is a spirit rock talk. Uh, on the West Coast, you're supposed to talk longer. So. <laughs> um. <laughs> and actually, some of the places I teach, it's, I'll just tell you right now, it's hard for me to do talks like this. I don't do very many in the year. I teach at places like Omega and stuff, and I can just, I just have an hour and a half or so, or two hours. I just talk until I'm done. Sometimes it's short and sometimes it's not. And it's actually very old school. In Asia, they do that, except they talk for hours. But you'd hear this, you didn't understand the language that well, you hear the same line a hundred times. You know it wasn't like, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of unavoidable physical dukkha going on. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give an example of how this can play out, just one small example of, of uh, something that happened with my wife in our kitchen. And it happens, she didn't know it happened, Okay. But it's just, and it happens, so this is how it's very practical. So I'll just describe different aspects of it. So uh, I don't even remember what it was. She came in, and she wanted me to do something a certain way, and I wanted her to do a certain, something a certain way. It's like to do a tea or something. Do you, do you ever have these things? Little thing. Who lives with other people? Okay. Who would like it your way? And other people would like it their way? And is there ever any little bit of tension between the two, ever? How many people have experienced that in their life at least once? Okay, there's two people asleep in the room. They didn't raise their hands. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so this, this happened. So basically, and I got, I got triggered. And we'd been down, we'd done the same thing. She said something, then I say reactive something. And then it takes a while, right? You know, we get triggered. It's a little domestic. We get a little, tr- not a big fight or anything, just a little, okay? You know. So, so I got triggered. So this was, something was unpleasant, okay? So I had an unpleasant experience. It should have been a certain way. It wasn't, right? I suffered, okay? Felt it, constriction, dukkha. I wanted it to go away. I felt the craving that it would be different than it was, right? I felt the reactive impulse to let something come out of my mouth, which would have created reactivity from her. But, and here's where the path comes in, I saw it. Why? Because I had mindfulness, enough mindfulness in that moment to actually know that I valued harmony. I did. I, like, I value harmony in my relationship with her. I value it. It's a value. I remembered that wise thought, that wise view of holding it. Okay? I remembered that, and then I remembered I had tools. So what did I do? I went to my breath. So I was mindful. So the mindfulness reminded me of my values. It reminded me that I had a tool. I went to the body and my breath. Mindfulness, foundations of mindfulness inside. I got a little calm. I did. I could feel it just like a, I went inside. I got a little bit of calm. Man, I wasn't striving so much. Just felt it, right? It was kind of, it was a balanced effort. Then I looked into that reactivity and I felt it. It was like visceral. It's like, it's a reaction very concrete. And when I looked at it, what happened? It actually displayed itself in the body and it faded. And I viscerally felt a quality of openness in my heart, in my body, and there was a, a little subtle quality of emptiness and openness. So that was the freedom. It was the blowing out, right? It was the impermanence, just seeing the change of the reactive energy, the not wanting, the pushing, pulling, seeing a change. And what was left was emptiness, was openness. And in that, there was a fresh possibility. And I, I, I said something totally different. It wasn't in our habit pattern. And it was kind of fresh. And I don't know. I thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> and we moved on. And she didn't know. Now she knows. Because I told her. <laughs> right? But that's, so that's a real example. It's available here and now. Okay. Okay. So it doesn't. I'm going to leave with one extra quote, and that's it. I'm doing. You know, when you see a movie, there are different versions of the movie. And so sometimes you find out later that there was an extended, uncut version, and you have to get that version to see. Well, you're not getting the extended, uncut. You're getting a slightly. Okay. There's different endings. So this is, a, this is from Ajahn Chah, and I think that it embraces the spirit. And actually, the Buddha had said that after, after he was awakened, he still, had, he still had energies arise in relation to his life that were not easy. He still had to deal with life. Okay? He still was tempted by things. But when they arose, they didn't, there was no place to land, right? So they were like guests, visitors. But they, if you can't sit down, if there's no place to stay, then 
they move on. So um, this is from Ajahn Chah. The leaves, it's called The Leaves Will Always Fall. Every day or two, the open grounds and walkways of the monastery, this is in Thailand, must be, swept, must be swept clear of the leaves that fall in every Asian season. For the large open areas, the monks will team up and with long-handled bamboo, bamboo brooms extended, sweep like a dust storm, clearing all the leaves in their path. Sweeping is so satisfying. Okay? You know what sweeping is here, right? Good. All the while, the forest continues to give its teachings. The leaves fall, the monks sweep, and yet even while the sweeping continues, and the near end of a long path is being cleared, the monks can look back to the far end. They have already swept and see a new scattering of leaves, already starting to cover their work. Our lives are like the breath, like the growing and falling leaves, says Ajahn Chah. When we can really understand about falling leaves, we can sweep the path every day and have great happiness in our lives on this changing earth. Let's sit for a minute. May the fruits of our practice, our inquiry, into Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the inquiry into our life, into exploring what binds us and what frees us in the here and now. And may our practice truly be a benefit to ourselves to those in our lives, in the interconnected web of life that we all inhabit, to all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.